you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 5. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to welcome everybody who's here with us. If you're live at NRH or if you're joining us online or maybe later on podcast. Here's what we're going to do today. Uh, I'm going to read James 5 verses 13 to 18. And then, uh, and then we're going to work through this passage. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. This is the word of the Lord for us today. I want to stop and pray before we work through this passage, kind of verse by verse. And, you know, on the weekend that we're having, uh, just looking at Verse 13, and seeing, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. And uh, can't help but think about what happened yesterday afternoon in Midland and Odessa. If you have seen the headlines, you know there was another mass shooting. And uh, the latest numbers are there, there were five who are dead, 21 who are injured. And um, I, can't, I can't think of a more appropriate time to pray. Um, so we're going to pray for, for Midland and Odessa, for everyone in that community, even as we pray for our time in the Word together today. Let's bow our heads. God, sometimes uh, I just don't have words. And we, uh, we see things that happen in our world, and all we can say is, God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. We need you. We need you as a healer. We need you as a redeemer. We need you to do a work in our world, in our nation, in our neighborhoods. We, and we ask for, for the sake of those in the community in Midland and Odessa, the same way that we have prayed for those in El Paso and so many other places, we ask that you bring comfort in the midst of despair, that you bring hope in the midst of sorrow, that you bring healing in the midst of pain, We pray for the families of the victims, some who are praying to you right now for their loved ones in the hospital. We pray for their recovery. We pray for their healing. We pray also for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones and family members. God, we don't know much yet, but we know it's wrong. We know it's evil. And we know that we need you. So we ask that you pour out mercy and grace on Midland and Odessa, I ask specifically that you work through the followers of Jesus in that community, that they would be a light in the darkness, that you would use them to be supporters, encouragers, servants, prayer warriors on behalf of so many, and that this would be a time that you work and show your love in the midst of senseless violence and hatred. And God, lead us in our time together today. Make this passage a living word to us. Open our hearts. And God, I just put before you, um, I just ask, Holy Spirit, would you work through me? 
even in this time. Lead us and guide us. We, we pray out of trust in you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I'll, I'll be honest, like, I'm, I'm an optimist. There's, there's part of me that, like, I'd, I'd rather start a sermon with a, with a little joke or with one of those kind of moments, and yet a passage like this reminds me that God meets us in whatever situation we're in, and we don't have to pretend. And the answer in every situation that we are in for James is prayer. Some form of the word pray is mentioned in every single verse, uh, in, like some seven times in every verse that I just read. It is undoubtedly the theme of James's conclusion to a letter he's written to a group of Christians. Now, if you've got your physical Bibles open, you see like we're two verses off of the end of the letter. And he is summarizing how then should Christians continue to live in the ups and downs of life. And for James, a key part of the answer is pray. So what I want to do, and this is some of this that we're going to get into at the beginning of the message may seem a little bit fundamental, a little bit 101, and yet for James, it becomes the foundation for what he's going to talk about to help understand uh, what, what we can, what we, to help us understand what we can know about prayer. And so if you're new, if you're exploring what it means to believe in God, if you're exploring the truths of Christianity, I'm glad that you're with us. I'm glad that you're listening online. Uh, if you've wondered some about prayer, uh, this, this text is going to give us some insights. So the first observation we can say that's pretty basic, but it's going to be foundational for everything else, is that prayer builds relationship with God. Now, again, I know that that's kind of like a, like a duh, of course, but I, I want you to look back at verse 13 to help understand how this works itself out. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. James wants us to see that our relationship with God should be multidimensional, but also that we should recognize it as a two-way street. It's part of how he's talked throughout this letter as we engage in relationship with God, that it's not just a one-way form of communication. In the chapter before this, in chapter four, here's what James says in regard to this two-way street. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now, sometimes we hear that, and maybe, maybe you hear that and think, okay, so again, God's waiting for me. I'm the one who has to show up, and that's what the preacher's going to say. Well, in part, yes, and in another sense, no, not at all. What we need to understand is that from the beginning, because God desires a relationship with us, because he does, in fact, want to draw near to us, what we have to understand is that first and foremost, God has been the one in pursuit of us. See, we believe that God made the world and that God came to save the world in the person, Jesus Christ. That is a way that we know God has drawn near. And when Jesus drew near, when Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, lived and walked among other people, he came to the hurting. He came to the hopeless. He was willing to be at parties where people were happy. He came in all corners of life and engaged with people and drew near and built relationships. He built friendships. He invested in a group of followers. He taught big crowds. He engaged on every scale with the people around him. But the fact that we can pray, the fact that God, the creator of the universe, would even hear our prayers, the fact we can draw near has only been made possible because Jesus did more than just draw among us, he was willing to take on our sin and pay for it on a cross. And through that, through his death, burial, and resurrection, now anyone with faith in Jesus gets to be part of God's family. 
And that is why I believe when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said to begin with, our Father in heaven. See, if you've grown up in church or if you've heard a number of sermons, some of this is like, yeah, I've heard this before. But we can't get past how radical that idea is. It should change our perspective on prayer that through Jesus, we now have a direct line to the divine creator, sustainer of the world who calls us his kids. Prayer is a gift, a privilege, not just a Christian right or, or something that like responsibility. It is in fact a relationship we're invited into. And so for some of us, if you, uh, if you grew up in or around church, or maybe you've, you're newer to church and yet you get into maybe a community group, you start gathering around people. Whenever prayer comes up or people ask for prayer requests, here's what inadvertently happens. Certainly what happened to me. I'm a preacher's kid, grew up in church, and here's what I saw. It'd be a time in youth group. All right, let's, let's ask, who, who's got prayer requests? And we would all operate out of the first half of verse 13. We would talk about what was going wrong. We would talk about somebody in our family that was sick. Prayer became a sort of emergency valve in bad situations. And even though it wasn't taught to me that that's what prayer was for, it's what I caught. So all of a sudden it would come around to me and go, hey, Taylor, you, you, got, you got any prayer requests? And if I couldn't think of a sick person in my family or around me, I'd be like, nope, I'm fine. But James fights against the idea of a one-dimensional prayer life when he goes from the people who are in trouble to, is anybody happy? You having an okay day? You have something to pray about. You have something to sing about. You can pray from a place of gratitude and thanksgiving. In a relationship, we're invited into more than just the bad days when we go to God. Just a side note, if, if that's a pattern you've got into, and I've been there before, what that inadvertently means is that you are using prayer as a, as a way to kind of ask God to work in your life only in the situations you care for him to work in. You're trying to control God and have him do what you want him to do to fix the problems that you have. Think for a moment about anybody in your life that when they call or when they walk over to your cubicle at work or when they text you, you know they're only reaching out because they want something. What kind of a relationship do you have with that friend or with that family member or with that coworker? See, if we only go to God when we're in trouble, if we only go to God with the bad, if we only go to God with what we want him to fix, then we have a one-dimensional relationship with him and we are missing out on part of what it means to draw near. Last thing I'll say before we move on with the passage. I get that when we talk about prayer, uh, that, that when we talk about individual prayer, sometimes that, that can be kind of like a, a nebulous thing to think through or, or, or work out. Or maybe for some of us, it's something that seems really obvious. But here's what, here's what I want you to think about for a moment. Think about the, the way that you communicate with friends or with family members throughout the day. Just the different modes of communication. Specifically, like, like think, uh, okay, you've got your texts that'll happen throughout the day. And for some of us, like when, we, when you hear a sermon on prayer, you're immediately like, oh, I pray all the time. All throughout the day, I'm talking to God. That's great. You got your text thread open, basically. And you're, you're sending those short little prayers. Hey, God, help. Hey, God, thanks. Like, God, I recognize you're here. Like little quick moments. That's awesome. But then there's another way that you communicate with other people. You sometimes will, and I know we do this less in 2019, but sometimes you'll actually pick up the phone and call. <laughs> and, you'll, and usually, like when I do that with, with uh, friends or family members during the day, it's usually task-oriented. If I reach out to, to my wife or to a coworker, it's like, hey, did you, uh, did you fill out this? Hey, did you see that email? And it's like a quicker, task, task-oriented, task driven thing. 
And sometimes we have those kind of prayers. Something happens and specifically we're like, God, I, I really, man, I'm not sure what to say to, to somebody about this. And we have a kind of oriented prayer with a specific need. Sometimes it's when we gather at a meal or, or even pray by ourselves before we eat and we're thanking God for what he's given us or praying before the meal. A little quick task-driven kind of phone call prayer. But that is no replacement, we should all agree, for how we interact with people when we actually get with them face-to-face in the room and we spend time with them. And in those times, it's not always task-driven. It's not just about one thing. It's about being with that person and enjoying their presence. This is the part of prayer that for my journey has been one of the most difficult. And for most of the followers of Jesus I talk to, it's one of the most like, man, you know, I know I should, but I don't. Or I know I should, but I've tried and it's kind of awkward. You know, I've set aside time before and I don't know, I didn't really get a lot out of it. So let me just invite you, and maybe some of you are listening and you're like, I've never done that before. And it sounds like I would either get, I don't even know how I do that. I would get super distracted or that's intimidating and I, I just don't know what to do. So let me, let me start you with something real basic. This is something I have done before. I dare you, this week, every day, pick a time slot. Because typically when we meet up with friends, it's not, just, it's not usually at random. It's like we've set a time. Like, hey, we'll meet you, meet you for coffee at 4.30. Oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to do dinner, dinner on Wednesday night. Like whatever it is, you've got a set time. Pick a time this week on a daily basis. Set a 15 or 20 minute timer. That's as long as like an episode you would, some of the episodes you'd watch on Netflix or some of the podcasts that you would listen to. And just set a timer by yourself and be with God. Just try it. And there's going to be times you try it and you get a little bit distracted. That's okay. God's patient. He's gracious. He's there with you. Maybe it's going to be being silent with him for a little bit. Maybe it's going to be, all right, here's the stuff I'm working through, but then getting to where you actually focus on who God is. Maybe it's going to be opening scripture and letting the Psalms guide some of your prayers. That's been something that I've done. But for too many of us, like we just, we take that time and we can blow through time on social media in a half hour, no problem. But God is inviting us to at least take time to begin to draw near to him. And I believe, and here's what's happened to me, God transforms us in and through those times when we are with him. Prayer works in some ways like a muscle where we develop this intimacy with the Lord that makes us more attentive to him when there is noise and when there is distraction because we've been with him in the silence, set apart times. But as we look at this passage, James kind of moves from there and goes to the fact that prayer isn't meant to only be between us and God. What I want you to notice in the verses that follows is that prayer requires vulnerability with others. Now, if talking about spending 20 minutes alone with you and God makes you uncomfortable, what I'm about to read next might make you even more squeamish, and that's okay. I kind of actually hope it does. So when we look at the text, we see here, starting in verse 14, James says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Some of us are reading that and we're like, that's different. Just wait, go to verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Now, these two verses have caused all kinds of different theories and controversies and stuff. And among the many questions you might be asking, one of them might be, 
okay, uh, maybe like at the hills, do you guys like actually do this? You like anoint people with oil when you pray over them? The answer is yes, not always, but our elders will do this at the request. And you notice it is the needy person who, the sick person who is requesting for this to be done. James even says that they're calling for the elders, which some New Testament scholars indicate, you know, this is probably somebody who is severely ill, most likely, because they're asking for the elders to come to them. It implies that they're not able to actually come to a gathered worship time. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily, like, delineate that way, and we're like, unless you're in a hospital, we're not coming with the oil. That's not how it is. I have sat with our elders in the prayer room with members of our church who have requested this, who have one in particular I can think of who was fighting cancer and, uh, and seen them anoint this person with oil and pray over them. And here's, in those kind of times, this is, this is the kind of thing I hear our elders say. This oil isn't special in and of itself. This is a sign and symbol of healing. And as I anoint you with this oil, I'm going to pray and ask for God's healing power to come and heal you. That This, we believe here in James 5, is a physical picture of a spiritual principle that God is the great physician, that he's the one who heals. And so we pray to him, we ask him to do do this work. But the other thing about this passage, among the many other questions you might have, I want to focus you on this for a moment. Did you notice that James instructs the person in need to reach out for help? There's some other questions you might ask about this text. I don't have time to deal with them today. Here's what I want you to wrestle with. I believe that in today's world and in our American westernized pull yourself up by your bootstrap society, we more often than not have perpetuated a culture of projected strength that we like to present that we've kind of got things put together. That some of us have grown up in families where to acknowledge weakness or to ask for help or to say, like, I'm, I'm hurting right now. Like, that was not acceptable. Or it was taught, like, if you've got those kind of feelings, if you're working through something, like, you need to stuff that down and push through and grit it out. And the challenge is that if that's how we've been taught inside of our families or inside of our culture, and then we walk into church, James invites us into something that is counterintuitive and countercultural. To be the one to say, I'm in a place where I need help. It makes me think about ministry that my wife and I volunteered in. This has been uh, several years ago at the church we were at in Charlotte, North Carolina before moving here. And on Thursday nights, we volunteered with a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. This is a ministry, if you're not familiar with it, that works with people for their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Now, they, they were meeting on Thursday nights on our church property, and uh, there was always a time of worship. That was usually how my wife and I were volunteering, was helping to lead worship. Then there'd be a time of teaching or maybe a, a longer testimony from someone, and then everybody would break up into groups. And in these groups at Celebrate Recovery, the people, would, uh, people there would talk about their hurts, about wounds from their past. They'd talk about their hangups, things they were continuing to try and get out of. They'd talk about habits that they were praying for God to release them from. And through that, over the time that we volunteered, we saw God work in some really transformative ways in people's lives. But the level of transformation was almost always matched by the level of vulnerability, by people being willing to be honest about what they were struggling with. And yet we got to see people who picked up their one-year sobriety chip. 
We got to see people who were open and honest of times when they had relapsed or struggled again and how they were uplifted and encouraged by their community. We got to see people get up and finally give their testimony of healing from particular types of bondage or how God had healed them and led them to a place of forgiveness for things that had been done in their past. Like we got to see some incredible things and the more I saw it, the more I thought, man, the church could take some notes from ministries like this. Nobody walks into a recovery ministry and just goes, what's up? I got this handled. Like that's not the posture. That's not the mentality when somebody shows up at a recovery ministry. But the danger is inside of church culture where we can just get used to like, this is where we come. And for some of us, like maybe you get in the pattern where like you dress up a little bit more at church. And so maybe you got like some of your church clothes, but then along with that comes the church facade. And along with the church facade comes the church four-letter word, which is fine. How you doing? Oh, man, I'm fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. Man, if I hear that word one more time, I'm going to explode, okay? Here's the deal. The challenge is, if we walk into a church who professes Jesus Christ as Lord, this, I believe, is partly why James brings up sin in the midst of talking about healing, Because if you walk into a church alongside the Hills Church, we might as well have written over the doorposts of our church, the vulnerable and weak are welcome here. And those are the only people allowed inside. But the problem is we project onto others inside of the church a kind of spiritual perfection that just isn't there. So just half a second, do this for me. Live at NRH, you just turn down the row, the people around you just next to you, just real quick, just real, real subtle, you know, and then look back up at me. Okay, quick secret, all right? Just don't tell anybody. Everyone you just looked at, super messed up. <laughs> don't tell them, don't point, okay? But everybody you just saw and everyone who saw you, everyone is a sinner in need of grace from Jesus Christ. When we come in here, we don't come with projected strength. We don't come like we've got it handled. Walking into a church is a declaration of need. It is waving a white flag and saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't earn something on my own. I need Jesus. Which I believe is why James takes us to something that's even more uncomfortable. Therefore, he says, verse 16, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Whoops. Well, among the other things that will make you uncomfortable in this passage, here we have James going, all right, here's the next step. Because healing is more than just what God's doing with our bodies. Healing is more than just what God does, but there is a deeper healing God is doing in and among all of his church. Now, some of you may be wondering, why, it is, why is James bringing up sin right here, praying about healing? A couple things to acknowledge, and one of them is kind of this tension inside of Scripture. There are places in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New, where particular diseases are the result of sin. And sometimes that's a form of judgment. I mean, like, it's something that we have to wrestle with that just makes us uncomfortable, But that's seen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the church in Corinth, they're abusing, in 1 Corinthians, the the Lord's Supper. And Paul specifically says there's some bad stuff that's happened to them out of their disobedience. Makes us uncomfortable. 
But on the other end of the spectrum, you go into the Gospels and you see Jesus talk about the connection between sin and healing. And there are times that when he heals someone physically, he also tells them your sins are forgiven. And the the healing physically was a sign and a way of showing that he was also healing them spiritually. But there are other places where Jesus talks with religious leaders and they think someone has sinned and that's why they're sick. And Jesus says, nope, that's not the case. So we don't have a one-to-one precedent or ratio. And James pushes past that and invites us to see that God is also doing a spiritual healing work that in the long run is far more important than whatever physical healing may or may not take place. And he invites us to a level of vulnerability that for some of us is the thing we most avoid, which is to be open-handed about our sins and our failures. Now, James is not advocating for indiscriminate confession. That you just walk up to anybody who's in the church and just, bah, just, just, just spiritual vomit. Here you go. This is all my stuff. It's not what we're talking about, okay? You don't have to do this with everybody, but you better be doing this with somebody. There should be a follower of Jesus, a brother or sister in Christ in your life. And I would say, I mean, for my practice, it's been more than just one. It's been a couple of close friends. And in addition to my spouse of people that I, I'm, I'm going to do my best by God's grace to live open-handed in the good, the bad, and the ugly. In part because they are going to remind me that when guilt and shame try and rear their ugly head and when the accuser says, you're a pastor, how can you still be struggling with X, Y, or Z? That Those are moments where they say, no, Taylor, you are a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else in the church. And to speak that grace, because here's, here's what's crazy. God has chosen to give us grace, but then to remind us of grace, not only through the Holy Spirit present with us, but with the Holy Spirit speaking in and through others, other followers of Jesus around us so that we are reminded of the grace and forgiveness that he's given us. And my concern is there's a bunch of people in this church and churches around the world who are missing out on that blessing and on that healing. And I do mean healing both in a physical and spiritual sense. In part from some research I was doing this week, I found out about this neuroscientist named David Eagleman. He wrote a book called Incognito about the human brain, and he specifically talks about how the human brain responds physiologically to holding in secrets. And even as a non-Christian neuroscientist, he talks about holding in secrets, in particular secrets that would be considered socially or spiritually wrong, and not sharing those failures, here's what he writes, and I quote, keeping certain behaviors secret means continual struggle with yourself. The internal dissonance and lack of a sense of personal integrity is draining. He, Dr. Eagleman goes on to describe, quote, an increased level of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle. So he's saying, and again, this is a non-Christian, saying holding in unconfessed sins or struggles is physically exhausting and draining. And here's part of how he concludes based on the research he saw. He goes so far as to conclude that this stress, quote, can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. Okay, I'll, I'll remind you, that's not a Christian 
This is a non-Christian neuroscientist in a popular level book based on research he's done at an academic level saying that James 5, God had something that was right because he's the one who created us and wired us and knows that when we confess, when we live open-handed with our struggles and with our ups and downs, God not only does something spiritually, but there is a physical healing and release. Studies that he referenced shows people who sleep better who function better, who go to the doctor less often because of a rhythm of confession. That's data, okay? That's, that's, not, that's not like a preacher's opinion. That God has wired us so that when we live open-handed and honest, there is a flourishing and a healing that can take place. But I recognize the other thing that you may be wrestling in this text is this idea that God would in fact miraculously heal someone. And that really he goes on from there to reference one of the most quoted verses, at least in my upbringing. Whenever prayer came up, this was a verse that was going to get quoted. But here's what we have to see in the text. Prayer trusts God for what only he can do. That prayer isn't only for, for building our relationship. It's not only part of how we engage in a vulnerable community. It's that over and above this, there is this arc in which we recognize he is sovereign. He is all powerful. So we go to him in prayer for what only he can do. And that's, I believe, why James goes where he goes. And here's the super quoted sentence that I heard growing up with prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Heard that a lot. And I would always think, okay, so now we've got a qualification. It's a righteous person. Which, growing up, I was like, oh, so those are like the super Christians. Those are the ones with the really good prayers. You want to go to those people. And, and more I wrestled with this, the more I realized, okay, hold on. Who is a righteous person? I, I mean, who's a righteous person? Number one, if you're inside of the church of Jesus Christ, if you follow Jesus and put faith in him, he who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. You have been called righteous as a follower of Jesus, not because of your own works, but because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And yes, there are people, and and James is referencing in somewhat the idea of someone who is living out their faith along with their works, which he talks about earlier in the letter. But don't make this a statement about only a select few in the church. This is a statement about followers of Jesus, covered with the righteousness of Christ. And here James goes on to give an example. Elijah, is an Old Testament prophet, was a human being even as we are. Okay, if, if you were a Messianic Jew, a converted Jew, listening to this letter, you would spit take at this point. Elijah? In the Old Testament, Elijah is considered, I mean, basically, he's like the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. You can read about his life in First and Second Kings. He does amazing things, and he's used by God in incredible ways. And, and James is like, he's just like you. He is not some super select, awesome prayer warrior. He, he is just like you. And now James is going to use him as an example to encourage the entire church in bold prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The implication is that 
Because God is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, we, like the prophets before us, like even who would be considered the all-stars of the faith, we have the ability to pray to that God, and if God so chooses, he will answer our prayers in God-sized ways. But that is if we are praying God-sized prayers. Elijah prayed for something that from a human standpoint is not possible. But through prayer, God redefines what is possible. If God so chooses, he can work through our prayers to change the course of a nation, to change the course of generations, to to impact communities in powerful and incredible ways. And James is inviting us into a kind of faith that reaches past what we're able to do and says, God, would you do it among us? Would you answer our prayer in this kind of a way? Now, it's worth noting, Elijah prayed because God told him to pray that. Elijah operates inside of God's will. And so the more we look in scripture, the more we want to be praying in God's will, and yet we want to be praying beyond our human capacity of what God can do among us. There's an early church leader and preacher named Chrysostom, and he has this awesome quote about the potency of prayer. I want you to listen to this. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed the anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, healed diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stopped the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer is an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mind which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. You may listen to that and think, well, that sounds cool, but it also sounds like rhetoric. Every single example he just listed was something that he found in the pages of scriptures. God has answered prayers in miraculous ways and he still does today. And from that, I want to I want to share I want you to hear a testimony of somebody inside our own church. Our young adult pastor Ross Kellner, a testimony he has shared from his life about prayer and healing. Watch this. My daughter's name is Charlotte, and she was about 10 months old when we had this powerful moment with the Spirit. And before that, as a baby, Charlotte would get ear infections randomly. And it would always be at the worst times. When we're exhausted as parents, we're going to sleep, she'd be crying and weeping and nothing would help, so we'd have to go to the doctor's office or go to Walgreens and get some medication. And so I remember I was going to church the next morning to preach. It was a Saturday night, and 11.30 hits, and all of a sudden I'm about to fall asleep, and she's crying, and I'm like, oh, here we go again. But it was in a moment where I felt like God would speak to me to lay my hands on her and pray for her. And usually I would not get that inclination, wouldn't feel that way, but I was able to pause myself and say, I don't need to call the doctor, I don't need to do this. Let's just by faith go in the room and Emily and I will lay our hands on her and pray. We should lean into prayer, that we should lean into you as God, as healer and heal my daughter of this ear infection. And so Emily and I, we lay our hands on her and we just quiet our hearts, we quiet our minds, we're frustrated and we just surrender how we're feeling and say, God, bring healing to Charlotte here. 
And we did this for about two minutes. We just laid our hands on her and she stopped crying. And we go back to bed and we didn't hear anything else. We woke up the next morning and she was happy as a clam and she was healed of her ear infection. And obviously God doesn't work like that in every single situation to heal people. But I really believe that if we called upon the Spirit to move in and through us more throughout our life by faith, that we'd see a hundred times more impact of what the Spirit can do in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we're at, that God can move in a powerful way. So little Charlie and I, uh, after growing out of that experience of God healing your ear infection many years ago, I feel like what God has taught me is to not try to control everything and say, I got to fix this, I got to try to do this, and just go into Ross mode, which we all have that mode of self-perseverance and controlling things, and say, hands open, God, what do you want to do here? Let me just pause. Let me not rush into action, but, but rush into presence with the Spirit. And that be, that be the centerpiece of my faith, more than doing simply being with God. Because it's in those moments we're actually empowered to hear the God of the universe speak and to see him move where we wouldn't otherwise. And when the times that I've done that, I've seen just God use me as a dad in more wise ways, as a husband, um, and just lean into joy more, lean into gratitude, because it's not about me. It's not about me trying to fix it. It's not about me trying to have all the answers, but it's about God moving in and through me by my surrendering myself. Right, Charlie? Love you. Love you. Now let's keep it real in here. I watched that and I'm like, praise God. I believe my brother's testimony. I believe God healed his daughter. And yet the first time he told me that, there's another part of my brain that's like, okay, I got like seven different earthly rationalizations for how that may not be exactly what, you know, and I start working through those things. And this is the tension we have to work through whenever we talk about God answering prayers in miraculous ways. I get that for some of you, that may have been hard to watch because you have somebody you have prayed over. You have a loved one. You have a child and you've laid your hands on them and you've asked God to do something and it hasn't been immediate. It hasn't been that way. And I can relate to that. And at the same time, I don't want those instances to keep me from celebrating when God answers prayer in a miraculous way. Here's the tensions we have to hold on to when we operate from faithful, expectant prayer. One tension, and I heard this a lot, and we still hear it in church, just because God can doesn't mean he will. Now this is something that's true. God is sovereign, and when we pray to him in faith, we are also submitting to him that we don't know everything. And so we don't always pray perfectly, but instead we are offering to him and we trust whatever he's going to do because he's sovereign, because he's in control. But the problem is, if that's my only handrail, if that's what I grab again and again and again, just because God can doesn't mean God will, then over, over time, what happens to me is I limit my prayers by earthly expectations. And so the other, the other end of this that I have to grab onto to walk faithfully in prayer and asking God to do what only he can do is that just because God hasn't doesn't mean he won't. God is in the business of doing new things among his people. God has always been in the business of doing the, expect, the unexpected and working in ways we may not anticipate. God had never come to earth before in human flesh, but then he did. God had never ended the sacrificial system he set up before, but then he did. And God 
had never died for the sins of the world before, but then he did. That God is doing a new thing among his people again and again through his spirit. So I grab onto those two tensions and I say, God, I'm still going to pray in faith. I'm still going to lift this up to you. And so here's what, here's what I want to do to finish. This is going to be a little bit different than normal. I'm going to invite you to stand. And here's what we're going to do. First, I want to have, have Barrett teach us a song that probably for most of us is going to be new. And that's okay. Let him sing this over you. And then we're going to join in. It's just an opportunity to wrestle with in faith and even in our questions, this posture of prayer. So I'm going to let you sing this over to him.